Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the uh, tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Father God, we ask you to bless this time of studying your word. Uh, may you touch our hearts. <clears throat> may, it, uh, may it give us hope for this season. And as we uh, think about what your word has to say, may we think of those loved ones, friends, family, etc., who need to hear this message, who need to hear the message about hope that has been revealed. And may you give us boldness to share that with them. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I love coming to Living Truth. I have so many friends here, and um, I always look forward, and everybody's always in a good mood, and we, you know, there's a lot of joking around and things like that. But I was a little bit concerned this morning because when I showed up, it seemed like everybody I uh, came across said, Hey, I'm praying for you. Now, that, normally that's a good thing, right? But you know, some of them said it like this. Hey, I'm praying for you. <laughs> Joe, I'm praying for you. Coming through the door. Joe, I'm praying for you, buddy. Sitting in the, sitting in the pew up behind me in my ear. I'm praying for you. I was like, am I that bad? <laughs> so... Let's talk a little bit, and I, I know Paul was praying for me, yep, amen. Let's talk a little bit about this passage. This isn't the normal passage that shows up in your Christmas cards. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, verse immediately following verse 5. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. That is the normal uh, Christmas verse. So what is happening here? Well, I want to take a moment and talk to you a little bit about the, what the role of the prophet was during the time of the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom was when um, basically what happened was uh, the Jews were led by Saul, David, and then Solomon. They had three kings beginning at about uh, 1050 B.C. In 930 B.C., the kingdom was split. The northern portion of the kingdom was comprised of ten tribes, and the southern portion of the kingdom was comprised of two tribes. Throughout Scripture, the northern kingdom is often referred to as Ephraim, who was one of the tribes, or Israel. Uh, the southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. So you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now I'm going to read very quickly out of... Uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, just to give you a little idea of how God used his prophets. 
So in 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 13, he says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah. The Lord warned Israel and Judah. He warned the north and the south. By every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and prophets. So the prophets were used by God to warn his people. Verse 14, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. And it continues, and it says that that they went after false idols. It says that they abandoned all the commandments. It says they they even burned their sons and daughters as offerings. This is how evil and wicked God's own people became, both the northern kingdom and even uh, the southern kingdom. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how God utilized his prophets They were to warn God's people of impending judgment. So now back to our text. We're asking, okay, so what's going on here if that's the role of the prophets? So what I want to do is uh, look into chapter 8 here in Isaiah. And the title of chapter 8 is The Coming Assyrian Invasion. So now Isaiah is warning God's people about... Uh, the Assyrian invasion. Now, Assyria was, at that time, the, the, the greatest world power. And uh, uh, they, were, they were north and east of the land of Israel. So in verse 5, Isaiah says, The Lord spoke to me again. So I'm give, we're going to give you some context here of, of chapter 9. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. This is God's provision. God's people are, are refusing and rejecting God's provision. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. So because they are rejecting the placid waters that God provides, He's going to bring the rushing waters of the Assyrian kingdom. The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. So here you have this picture of this roaring river that goes beyond its banks like a flood. And it's going to come upon the land of Israel. And it will sweep on into Judah also. So Judah's in the south, Israel's in the north. Assyria comes from the north down into and basically captures the ten northern tribes. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck of Judah. So the Assyrians actually came into the southern kingdom, took many of the uh, villages and cities, yet... It reached its neck. It didn't reach its head. Its head being Jerusalem. Jerusalem was protected. Jerusalem, the holy city, was in the southern kingdom of Judah. 
and it outspread wings and will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So there we have this picture. Here's this prophecy that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So because of what's going to happen with Assyria, the land will be in gloom. Chapter 9 begins with a but or a nevertheless. So if we go back a couple verses in chapter 8, and you look at verse 21 of chapter 8, it's talking about the people um, in God's, uh, God's people in, in the land. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God's people will be thrust into thick darkness because of their rebellion, because of their sin, because of their uh, rejection of God's law, his statutes, etc. Their entire land will be thrust into thickness. And here is this prophecy of Isaiah saying, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So what's happening? Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This, spoken of Isaiah, is written as something present, yet for Isaiah, who's writing around uh, 740, 740 B.C., he's talking about an event that's going to happen 740 years later. He's prophesying the birth of Christ, recording it as it's already happened, yet even for him, it's a future event. Because the Assyrians did not come down into Israel and Judah until they, they began their campaigns in 732, and by 722, the entire northern kingdom had been exiled. They'd been captured, and the people were taken away. So Isaiah writing in 742 is writing about a future event as if he's there. And because it's God's word and God's vision, in a sense, he is there. So he's writing about it as a past event. Grammarians, those who study grammar, call this the prophetic perfect voice. Uh, speaking or writing about something that hasn't happened as if it has happened, and you're speaking as a, basically an eyewitness of that event. So that is truly unique and truly remarkable. When we think about uh, the book of Isaiah and uh, this uh, being recorded in seven, uh, 740 B.C. So now why specifically is there gloom? Well, when I, I'm going to go back to 2 Kings because here's the recording of that event when the Assyrians came in uh, to the northern kingdom. 2 Kings chapter 15. 
verse, uh, beginning in verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, or, or Uzziah. Azariah is called Uzziah, Azariah. He is the king, one of the kings of Judah. Pekah, the son of Ramalia, began to reign over Israel. So you have two kings there. You have the southern king, Uzziah, the northern king, Pekah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 28. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who was the... Uh, the king that preceded him. He made Israel to sin. Verse 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, the king of Syria, Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, came and captured, and you have several towns there. These towns were all part of the northern kingdom. You see the word Naphtali there. You see the word Galilee and we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Bringing into contempt is the event of Assyria conquering the northern kingdom. That is them being brought into contempt. And now, Isaiah is saying, in the latter time, he's going to make it glorious. And he makes it glorious by, by how? By bringing a light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So these people, living in Isaiah's time, look at their behavior. 8.21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. These people are in great need, aren't they? And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. Isn't that strange to you? That's the exact opposite response you would think God's people would have. When you're in dire need, when you're in gloom and distress, when your land has been basically uh, uh, wiped out, they turn their faces upward. Is that not the heart, a, a, a wicked heart? You turn your face upward to the God of the universe, and you're enraged and you speak against him. It says they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness. It reminds me of the picture in Revelation. Revelation um, uh, chapter 16. Where something similar happens. Revelation 16 verse 9. It says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and what? They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. 
These people are cursing God, they're enraged at God, they're angry at God, and he is the only one that can um, alleviate their problem. He's the only one that can alleviate their situation. So it's misdirected, isn't it? In John 1, 4, it says that in him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shined in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if to walk with Christ is to walk in light, what is it to walk without Christ? It's to walk in what? It's to walk in darkness, isn't it? So we have in verse 2 that the people were walking in darkness, they were walking without Christ, yet they've seen a great light, they dwelt in the land of darkness, and now a light has shined. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to read for you, beginning in verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. The theme of our season is a season of hope. This morning's title is Hope Revealed. And here Jesus begins his ministry in the exact location that Isaiah wrote about 700 years before. And Isaiah says, the land that was viewed with contempt by God, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And yet Jesus goes to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and a great light on them had dawned. Amen. Back to our text in Isaiah. So we know that the hope of the world is the light of the world. Isaiah continues in verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So God's people go from being in darkness and anguish, a land covered in darkness and gloom. And because of the light that has dawned, because of the arrival of the Messiah, Isaiah says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Peter says that although we do not see him, although we cannot see Christ at this moment, but because we do believe in him, we rejoice with joy, with joy inexpressible, filled with glory. 
It's God that multiplies the nation. It's God that increases joy. And because of that, they rejoice as if a great harvest has come. So a land and a people who were in need received the greatest gift possible. They received light and a harvest in which they could rejoice. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We're still talking about the great light. We're still talking about the Messiah. We're still talking about the arrival of Jesus Christ. For the yoke of his burden. What is is Isaiah talking about? We've had hope revealed. The light has dawned. The kingdom's been established. There's joy in the land. And that's because Christ has conquered sin. Isaiah is talking about the atonement. Isaiah is talking about what, what our Lord did in order to conquer sin. The illusion here for the Jewish mind is evident. The illusion to slavery... Being able to pick that out is, is very obvious for the Jews. In fact, uh, who didn't at one time or another oppress the Jews throughout history, right? The Egyptians, oh, the Midianites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, and then eventually the Babylonians, and you name it. So the picture here of a yoke of burden, a staff on the shoulder, a rod from the oppressor, and then to hear the words, but you have broken it as on the day of Midian. And if you're not familiar with the, uh, the allusion to Midian, you might want to read Judges chapters, I think, 7 and 8, where Gideon, who's familiar with the story of Gideon? Gideon is commissioned by God to wipe out the Midianites. The Midianites, I think, uh, probably had over 100,000 warriors. And it was interesting because here God, uh, God, God sends an angel, approaches Midian, uh, Gideon. Gideon is uh, uh, kind of separating the wheat from the chaff. He's hiding in the wine press because the Midianites would come and just take, take the, uh, the produce, the land, the animals, just at will. So the Midians would just come and just do whatever they want uh, with God's people. And um, God tells Gideon that he's going to use him as a mighty war- warrior. And Gideon says, I don't know who you're talking to, but I'm no mighty warrior. In fact, I'm the least of my family. Basically, he was saying he was like, not even like one of the strong ones of his brothers. So God raises him up, and um, they get about 32,000 uh, warriors together. Well, they weren't warriors, because God said to uh, Gideon, if we go into battle with this amount of people, the people will take credit for the victory. You have too many people, Gideon. So what I want you to do is uh, offer anybody who's afraid they can go home. 20,000 people packed it in. 
and went back to their homes. Gideon now has uh, 22,000. Gideon now has 10,000 men ready to fight left against a a force of over 100,000 men. And God says, you know what, Gideon? You still have too many. So Gideon gives them a way in which he can uh, determine which men to keep and which men not to. And it had to do with how they were to drink water out of the brook. Did they use their hand to drink the water or did they get down on their hands and knees and and, uh, basically drink the water by placing their face in the the stream? So uh, Gideon ends up with 300 men. 300 men to take on an army of 100,000. You're going to have to read the rest of the story for yourself. It's in the book of Judges, chapter 7, chapter 8, right in there. Uh, Needless to say, as Isaiah says here, you have broken, the rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Yes, Gideon and his 300 men won the battle. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's a strange verse. We see that hope has been revealed. We see that a light has dawned. We see that God has multiplied the nation and increased its joy. We see that that the light that had dawned also took on the yoke of the burden and broke the oppressors. And now every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. What's he referring to? Referring to that once, once Jesus Christ has accomplished the work that he came to do, the work that he came to do was to be a, a light to the world But additionally, it was to break the yoke of sin. It was to conquer the oppressor. It was to free his people. And once he's accomplished that by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, then every boot of the tramping warrior and every garment that's been used in war can all be gathered up and burned because the day of war is forever over and so there's a there's a picture here not only um, is the picture of uh, of the first advent and we're still celebrating the first advent in anticipation of the second advent in anticipation of Christ's return the second time and it's at this second time that the ultimate fulfillment of these last Three, 3, 4, and 5 are fulfilled. So if you look at verses 3, 4, and 5, and you think about Christ's second return, their ultimate fulfillment is in His second return. There will not be war any longer. Back in Isaiah, very, you know, a very famous verse. I think this verse is uh, on the uh, walkway in front of the United Nations building. So there in New York, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations 
and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither, neither shall they learn war anymore. At Christ's second coming, he will eliminate war forever. There will be eternal peace. So I want, to, I want to think about a few verses in light of this passage. First Peter chapter 2, Peter says that Christ suffered for you. He was reviled, he was mocked, yet he didn't respond back. He suffered, yet he didn't threaten. He didn't open his mouth. He took the rod of the oppressor. He wore the yoke. He wore the yoke that you and I, because of our sin, should wear. Yet he did it so we don't have to. In Isaiah chapter 53, there's a clear a picture of what theologians call the vicarious atonement as anywhere in scripture so here we are in the same book the same prophet Isaiah and we have a picture of what it is that Jesus Christ did on our behalf and it's as clear as any picture in scripture And I'll begin in verse 3 of chapter 53. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He was stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus Christ was afflicted and stricken. He was punished for your sins and my sins. And that is why the light dawned on an anguished land. We go back to uh, Matthew chapter 4, 
the passage where Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And he begins his ministry in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Verse 17 says that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. That was the light dawning. That is the message that brings liberty. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God calls upon us, each one of us, to repent. And if you are not walking in the light, then that means you are in darkness. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. God calls us to the light. In the Gospel of John, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. I'm going to pray, and uh, if, you're from, if you've been here and you're a member here, or you, you know that... Uh, at the end of the service, we have people down front that are willing to pray with you. I would be willing to, uh, to say that here this morning, there are people here that either want to get to know this Jesus Christ, this light that dawns, this light that we are supposed to walk in, or maybe just um, re recommit yourself. Reconfirm your your, your relationship with the Lord. Why not today? Right here, Christmas season. The day of the Advent, the first Advent. Why not today? Hope has been revealed. It's clear who the hope is. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ, my friends. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. And so I would challenge you that if you haven't been walking with the Lord... I would challenge you to recommit yourself to the Lord. You can do it by coming down front when, uh, when I wrap up, and you can share with one of the elders or pastors, or you can actually do it sitting right in your seat. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and give you an opportunity to uh, sort of clear your conscience if that's something you need to do. Heavenly Father, your word, Lord, is truly remarkable. You, uh, you gave <clears throat> true words to men to write and speak about events that would take place far in the future. And the way they did it with such clarity is amazing. And Lord, we thank you. You say that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to uh, pierce 
It's able to pierce between bone and marrow. It's able to convict hearts. It's, it's able to enlighten minds. Lord, we just pray your Holy Spirit upon this congregation, Lord. And Lord, as we take a moment to think about where we're at, just a little inventory, where we're at with you at this Christmas time, would you uh, convict our hearts of any unconfessed sin? Lord, would you convict our hearts of anything that we need to confess to you, something that we're holding on to? And Lord, if there's anybody in here that doesn't know you, that still walks in darkness, that still looks to the earth instead of to the sky for hope, Lord, I pray that you will enlighten their mind, that you will remove the scales from their eyes, that you open their heart, that they could receive the light that Jesus says that he is as the light of the world. So we'll take a moment, Lord, and I just pray that you work in our hearts.